Okay, uh, welcome to our very first podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the State of the Outdoors. Uh, I am Colonel Retired Mike Abel, and my partner in this venture is... Ben Bishop. Okay, so uh, the State of the Outdoors is where we tell you straight what's going on at the state, local, and federal level that impacts our outdoor heritage. Our intent is to inform and empower sportsmen and women to get involved not to editorialize or sensationalize the issues of the day. My partner, Ben, I appreciate you, brother. What have you been up to? Oh, yeah. I've uh, been doing a little bit of hunting here lately. Got a, I've yet to fill a deer tag, unfortunately. Uh, went out with both a rifle and a bow, but still got, as of right now, still got about three weeks or so left to try to get it done with a bow, and uh, I can guarantee you I will be out there trying. Been doing a little bit of, uh, a little bit of waterfowl as well. Got a, uh, uh, a cousin of mine got drawn for the uh, slews quota hunt down in Henderson, and uh, our weekend for that it was still a bit warm, so we didn't see a whole lot of ducks. A lot of snow geese there, as hmm. always, but uh, we didn't see a whole lot of ducks. Didn't even get a shot off, but still a good time out on on the public lands. <laughs> but hopefully, still got still got a little bit of deer and uh, squirrel left within the next month or so. Right on, man. I I uh, I hate to say it, but brother, I got you beat mostly because you're <laughs> you're still <laughs> you're still working for a living, right? And right. I'm retired. Yeah, I've uh, I did pretty good. Did okay in Alaska early this year, and uh, uh, I filled four deer tags, three of which were Fort Knox tags, which is public land uh, awesome. technically. Yeah, I struck out there too. <laughs> yeah, I got my I got my nicest book of the season down there on public land, and then. Uh, that was with their uh, during their slug muzzleloader hunt, and then uh, got two does of the bow down there, and then uh, and then got a, a very wild cull buck off of uh, my little farm up in Owen County. It had an antler okay. growing straight out the side of its head. Really? Yeah. It was just one. Just was the other side fine. The, the other side was okay. Um, hmm. But uh, talked to the other landowners, and they said, "Man, if you see that joker." Please shoot it, and of course, there's a family up there that wanted the meat, so you, right. have, you don't have to encourage me. Right, right. So, no, I don't blame you a bit. And then I got some older, older buddies, older gentlemen, in the who've been hunting and doing their thing for years and years. That have been very blessed. They've invited me out to squirrel hunt a bunch, and I got to quail hunt one day. And hunting behind, awesome. hunting behind good dogs, is just there's nothing like it. It's too cool. It really is. It's too yeah. cool. And I don't even care how good we do, just to watch the daggum dogs run and the dogs work. So uh, yep. uh it's been a blessed season already and um I guess we're uh to you with the federal issues, brother. All right. We got there's a lot going on, but I do just want to just highlight just, you know, three or four different things uh before we get to the state issues with you. Uh we'll start out with what's going on up in Alaska near Juneau. In the Tongass National Forest. Now you said you said you've never hunted the Tongass. Or no, never, been up, uh, never, not. never even been through there. I, just I, I've I've hunted close to there for bears, but mm. but not not the Tongass. No. Not in the Tongass. Okay. Well, for all the listeners here, the Tongass National Forest is the largest national forest we have in the U.S. at roughly 17 million acres or so. A lot of wildlife there. A lot of uh, a lot of mammals. A lot of a lot of fish up there with, uh, I know they got like five different types of salmon with there. Uh, a lot of marine life. Not to mention the nine million roadless acres they have. Just complete pristine wilderness here. And uh, back in October this year, uh, it, the president asked for 
the state of Alaska to look into putting in roads, basically putting in roads and um, basically starting to sell it off or fragment the habitat, you know. With roads comes industrialization, all that stuff, development. And so that's something to keep an eye on. It sets a very, very slippery precedent in doing so because there is the roadless rule that's in effect up there. The roadless rule there, I mean, basically says that any, any wilderness area like that in the Tongass, in that 9 million acres, you know, nothing is supposed to go on there. No, it's pristine wilderness for your hunters, your anglers, your fishermen, backpackers. No, no commercial development. No commercial development, exactly. And I think doing that just sets a pretty, pretty slippery precedent as far, you know, going forward with that. And a lot of the times with when we talk about the public lands like that, we get into the issues with multiple use. And, you know, that's something we have to, as hunters, anglers, whatever, to try and, uh, to try and compromise with other developments such as that. And that's just something to keep an eye on there in the Tongass in Alaska. And also we want to talk about HR 877, the Modernizing Pittman and Robertson Fund for Tomorrow's Needs Act. And this is a bipartisan legisla legislation passed in both the House and the Senate. And uh, this puts almost a billion dollars back into conservation. I got the breakdown of the numbers here with 495 million of that going to the LWCF, which is the Land and Water Conservation Foundation. Fund. Fund. $495 million for the Land and Water Conservation Fund. $200 million going to the Everglades restoration, which uh, will help reduce harmful algae, uh, algae blooms within the Everglades. $55 million of that is going to WaterSmart, which is different fisheries. $175 million to the NRCS watershed, which is your natural, natural resources. And $73 million going to the Chesapeake Bay, which... We know up there they've got a lot of overfishing happening up there, a lot of commercial fishermen, and that's they've finally partnered with some of the the federal government's finally partnered with some organizations and agencies up that way to try to rein that in just a little bit. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about RAWA, Recovering America's Wildlife Act. And in my opinion, I don't think I'm overstating it, is probably the biggest piece of conservation legislation within the last 80 years. I don't think you're overstating it. Since, no. since Pittman-Robertson. It's, it's, I mean, a blue ribbon panel of industry experts, wildlife conservation experts, mm -hmm. biologists all got together and it was brought about to affect and arrest the loss of species right. on the continent. Right. And that is that is H.R. 3742 brought forth by Representative Dingle out of Minnesota. Who is related to Dingle, Dingle Johnson. Of Dingle Johnson, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a good, good conservation <coughs> family going there. <laughs> that's a pedigree. <laughs> but, I mean, it basically it restores habitat. It fights your invasive species. helps control disease such as CWD, which thankfully we haven't been exposed to yet in Kentucky, but... Yeah, it's some would say it's a matter of time. It's a matter of time, yeah. And uh something good coming from this is no new taxes coming out of it. It's coming out of an exist an existing revenue stream, which I think 
most people can get behind, really. And I know, uh, I think I heard you say, what does it put into Kentucky? Well, if the projections that I've heard is that it will nearly double the bu- the budget of the Department of Fish and Wildlife here in Kentucky. So basically, putting it about what hundred a little million? over a hundred million, yeah. So wow. the, the department the the department fluctuates between a high fifty million mm-hmm. and no more than probably sixty five sixty six million, and this will put them over a hundred million. Wow. Yeah, that's <laughs> that it, would be awesome. Yeah, and it really what it expands is not just our ability to do game and fish, but to non-game species. We really right. start to be able to do some really effective work on non-game species if the Recovering America's Wildlife Act goes down. Right. Good. Well, uh, let's uh, let's all keep an eye on that and uh, hope that passes. And uh, a great place to get uh, to take action with this would be through the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers website page which is backcountryhunters.org or is it .com? It's .org. It's .org, yeah. Okay. I was thinking I always get that confused. But there's a take action button on there. You'll see all the different issues, and you can go in, put in your put in your first and last name, email address, your address, and it will pre-format an email for you, and uh, it will send that out to your different legislators, whether you know they're senators, representatives, whatever, and basically, you know, Tell them you're a sportsman, you know, this is your opinion on the matter, this is what we'd like to see. And it's pre-formatted for you, easy as could be, and I think that's a great place. It's a great tool for everybody to be able to use. And uh, one one more thing I'd like to cover, which would transition easily into your state issues, would be the Green River National Wildlife Refuge. Oh, absolutely. That is, I'm extremely excited about this. The The only other National Wildlife Refuge we have in Kentucky is the Clarks River. And do you know when that was established? No. Uh, it, I, it, was we, befo- it was before my time. It was before my time, and I'm older than you. <laughs> so, it was before my time. So, I'm pretty excited to get to see this, you know, how it plays out, the whole process, you know, what they do from beginning to end with this and I'm also a waterfowlist and that's right there at the confluence of the Green River and the Ohio River in Henderson County and now that's more that's more public land waterfowl for for everybody of the state and you know I can't can't wait to see what what becomes of this so that's uh that's about all I got on the national side of things uh what do you got for us with the state well at the state level (laughs) we're we're really busy. Um, <laughs> we're busy because uh, there's just a lot going on. And, and the first thing that you'd, you'd really have to talk about is the election that, that we just had. And that's right. really the elephant in the room. Uh, we have a new governor, Andy Bashir, mm-hmm. which means we're going to get a new secretary of tourism. And that's going to be Mike Berry. Um, Mike worked uh, for a long time um, with the Thunder of Louisville and Mm-hmm. You know, that whole festival uh, yeah. in Louisville and is a very accomplished man in the areas of, uh, you know, tourism and putting on events and such. And um, the reason that, that we need to talk about that here and the reason it's the elephant in the room is under the previous governor, um, his secretary of the Tourism, Arts and Heritage Cabinet, Don Parkinson, um, was was really a a severe micromanager of the Department of Fish and Wildlife. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where the League of Kentucky Sportsmen, um, our overarching uh, or umbrella organization in the the Commonwealth for all clubs, 
all conservation outfits, all wildlife societies really mm. are almost exclusively affiliates of the league. The league sent a letter to the governor's office, you know, asking for the governor to get rid of Secretary Parkinson and to do an investigation on our new commissioner of fish and wildlife, yep. uh, Rich Storm. And that went completely unheeded. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reason they asked for that was, was multifaceted. But um, one of the biggest issues of that was Secretary Parkinson was in charge when the previous commissioner, the head of the agency of the Department of Fish and Wildlife, Greg Johnson, was forced to resign. And instead of hiring a very qualified new uh, lifelong sportsman or biologist um, or Ph.D. environmental scientist, someone qualified for that job, he put his secretary, uh, he put the chief of staff of his secretariat, um, Frank Gemley, in as the head of Fish and Wildlife. Well, under Kentucky Revised Statute 150.022, we actually have a law that defines what a sportsman is. Mm-hmm. And under that law, Mr. Gemley doesn't qualify. <laughs> so, not only, you know, it doesn't matter how accomplished Mr. Gemley is, he doesn't qualify as a sportsman by law. So he, right. couldn't, he couldn't even sit on the Fish and Wildlife Commission, much less be in charge of the entire agency. Yeah. Went even further, Don Parkinson did, and appointed Misty Judy, who's a human resources executive at the department, or excuse me, at the Tourism Arts and Heritage Cabinet, to be the deputy director of Fish and Wildlife. Now, this all happened in the past, but that's the reason that is one of the reasons that lead, that the lead Tuggy sportsman asked for Secretary Parkinson to go. And really, their point was, and, and I have to endorse this point, is that we need to return the autonomy of the Department of Fish and Wildlife to the Fish and Wildlife Commission. We're blessed in the Commonwealth here to have a Fish and Wildlife Commission. It's made up of nine nominated by sportsmen members mm-hmm. who are then appointed by the governor and under KRS, again, law, under yep. Kentucky Revised Statute 150.023, paragraph 4, that commission has the power to run the Department of Fish and Wildlife and allow the head of the agency to expend monies and to do the things the sportsmen want. And those nine volunteer commissioners represent us in mm-hmm. nine districts. Right. Yep. So Secretary Parkinson, the previous tourism secretary, didn't allow that to happen. He did some other onerous things. And so we are all looking forward to, and although hope is not a method, we're hoping, <laughs> we're hoping that uh, our new tourism arts and heritage secretary, Mike Berry, returns the autonomy of the Fish and Wildlife Department to the commission. Um, the second thing that's going on, brother, is, uh, we have a legislative session beginning on, uh, the 7th of January, which I'm super happy you had time to do this. I know you're leaving for an elk hunt Yeah, <laughs> and, yep. and we wanted to get the first podcast out, uh, you know, before, uh, certainly before the legislative session started so that yep. people understood what's going on. And there's a number of pre-filed bills, um, where our legislators, um, sponsor some of these pre-filed bills are, are interesting in their scope um, some of them are very finite some of them are very very detailed but the interesting thing about all the pre-filed legislation is there's hundreds of bills that have been pre-filed before the, the session starts and legislators are really good about hiding things mm-hmm. in legislation yeah. and packaging legislation and so um 
there's a number of uh, talented people in the sportsmen and women's community that we're, we're all going to get together and we're going to work together to review all the legislation that's been pre-filed in order to come up with um, a master list that will post for all sportsmen of all the bills. Mm -hmm. But they do list bills by headings. And so for tonight's show, we're going to go through the bills that fall under the firearms and hunting and fishing headings. Um, the first of those bills is Bill Request 187. Uh, 187 would repeal the carry concealed deadly weapons without a permit license. Uh, it used to be in the state you had to have CCW training and a license. At this point, you don't. Um, Bill Request 187 would repeal that, and you would have to have a license again. So yeah. it would reinstate the licensure program because right now you don't need it right. to carry yeah. concealed. Uh, that's sponsored by Charles Booker from the 43rd District, Jefferson County. Uh, Bill Request 354 would create an entire new section under Kentucky Revised Statute 527 to make large capacity magazines a crime. It would require the registration of assault weapons. It would require legally registering assault weapons. It would require them to be stored in a manner that made them inoperable. And a host of other issues, including registration of assault weapons by the Kentucky State Police and a buyback program by, managed by the Kentucky State Police. Um, that's sponsored by Jeffrey Donahue, 37th District, Jefferson County. Um, then there's Bill Request 342. Um, and this is a very, very long and involved bill. It's comprehensive firearm regulation to define or further define what an assault weapon actually is, what large capacity ammunition feeding devices are, it would require background checks for private firearm sales, additional rules for when to report stolen items to police, new rules for judges to remove firearms for anyone found mentally deficient in court, and a requirement for the Kentucky State Police to begin a detailed registry of assault weapons and handguns, plus even more detailed items um way too detailed for this podcast but then right. again that's bill 342 it's a comprehensive firearm regulation that's trying to get uh filed by uh george brown uh jr out of the 77th district in fayette county um and then the last of the um Gun issues or firearm issues or bills that have been filed this are, are pre-filed for the January 7th session is Bill Request 282, which would make it a crime to unlawfully store a firearm. Uh, and there was caveats on whether it was a Class B or Class A misdemeanor hmm. uh, reference. If some if it was improperly stored and someone was hurt, it then became a Class A misdemeanor. Gotcha. Um, but it didn't actually define or where I could research and find what it meant to unlawfully store it. Yeah. So that's a little too nebulous for me, uh, but not to editorialize. Anyway, Bill Request 282 uh, is sponsored by uh, Gerald A. Neal of the 33rd District, which is in Jefferson County. And then two hunting bills were pre-filed. Bill Request 492 would prohibit the use of commercially manufactured spring-loaded traps for the purposes of taking fur bearers. Uh, that's sponsored by uh, Julie Rocky Adams uh, in the 36th District, Jefferson County. And then uh, one of the bills that almost all sportsmen are behind uh, is Bill Request 258, 
um, which would require the Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources to promulgate administrative regulations, legal speak for making rules, to allow an expansion of hunting coyotes at night. Okay. Um, would uh, put some put some restrictions on when it could be done. Um, you know, keep them keep people from hunting at night during deer and elk season. Right. But but it allow a a very large expansion of uh, coyote hunting at night. Because we've got it now from what February to May. And, it, and then it's you know in the evenings or excuse me in cover darkness it's you know there's no centerfire rifles allowed. Right. This would allow centerfire rifles. This would, okay. okay. This would allow night vision. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's seen as a good thing. And again, that's okay. Bill Request two fifty eight, uh, and the only bill in hunting and fishing and firearms not sponsored by someone who represents an urban district. <laughs> uh, this one that takes us to uh, the Kentucky Fish and Wildlife Commission meeting. Uh, that happened on December 6th in Frankfurt. And for listeners that don't understand, our Fish and Wildlife Commission, I spoke of earlier, the nine volunteer-nominated commissioners that represent us in the nine districts statewide and are then appointed by the governor, those folks meet eight times a year legally. Um, They meet once a quarter in committee to work on things, and then they pass out of committee to their commission meeting the following month, so we had a committee meeting in November. It was actually down towards uh, uh, Kentucky Lake. Then we had the commission meetings roughly 30 days later in Frankfurt on December the 6th and went over a whole host of issues. But the first thing that happened at the uh, Fish and Wildlife Commission meeting was we had a presentation by Mr. David Ledford, uh, who is the president and CEO of the Appalachian Wildlife Foundation, and the Appalachian Wildlife Center. And uh, his presentation centered around the new center. Um, and uh, it'll be in Bell County and up and running, according to Mr. Ledford, sometime in 2021. And uh, he tells us that it'll bring tens of thousands of visitors and tens of millions of dollars in revenue um, to Bell County for people who want to participate in ecotourism, specifically elk viewing and bird watching. Um, the sportsmen who were there, uh, Mr. Ledford graciously took questions. The sportsmen who were there expressed um, sincere concerns with really two big issues. Um, the first was our Department of Fish and Wildlife trapped and gave the Appalachian Wildlife Center 241 elk. Um, without public knowledge? W- without public knowledge okay. or public voting. Um and the contract for uh, that was done was done under Greg Johnson. Now, this is the commissioner that was forced to resign mm-hmm. a few years ago, okay? So he was the signatory to that. Mr. Ledford was a signatory to that, and the other signatories to that are no longer working in Fish and Wildlife, uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife as well. But anyway, we digress. <laughs> um, so the sportsmen are worried because in that contract it says, at some point we are supposed to get elk back. Mm-hmm that there, there's not going to be any hunting. Um, and there's some people that believe that giving 241 elk to a private entity uh, violates the Lacey Act. You couldn't sell a private entity 241 elk. Right. How could you give a private entity 241 elk? Yep. And and the caveats have been, well, we give, we give or we stock elk mm-hmm. on other areas. Well, that's true, but those areas allow hunting. Yep. 
there's not going to be any hunting here. So we basically gave 241 elk for a private preserve that people are going to have to go pay and see, including the sportsmen mm -hmm. who already pay through our license sales and Dingle Johnson, Pittman Robertson, et cetera. So there was some sincere concern, sincere concern in the room because that contract says we get elk back, meaning his herd will grow mm -hmm. on the Appalachian Wildlife Center, and at what point do we get elk back? Yeah. That answer was left a little nebulous. <clears throat> Still a concern. Uh, the second concern was um, the sheer magnitude of revenue that Mr. Ledford talks about and the sheer numbers, the tens of thousands of visitors that he talks about are going to visit the center are of concern. Um, we have uh, ecotourism and elk viewing at LBL, Land Between mm -hmm. the Lakes, and we have it in Frankfurt at the Salado Center. Yep. And those two outfits don't turn... Uh, near the numbers. Mm -hmm. We also still have uh, elk tours and elk viewing at Jenny Wiley State Park. Yeah. And it doesn't turn these numbers. So there's some concerns. What I can tell you, the overarching sentiment was everyone wants the Appalachian Wildlife Center to be successful. Yeah. No any, any endeavor in Bell County, any endeavor in the Appalachians that's going to help rise up the economy there or lift up the economy there. So everyone was behind it. Everyone was for it. Just some concerns. Yeah. Um, and of course there's multiple divisions within the Department of Fish and Wildlife that, that brief at these commission meetings. So the division, uh, leaders who work for the department, they're full-time employees. They come in and brief the nine volunteer appointed commissioners. The first, um, division to brief was admin education and uh, policy division. Um, did an excellent job. Um, it looks like we're saving some money and operating in a, very fiscally responsible manner. Um, and to that end, some of the commissioners brought up the fact that uh, they probably need to reconvene the Alternative Revenue Committee, um, basically a, a committee where they brainstorm ways to to find new untapped revenue streams for the department. Okay. But that uh, admin education and policy division went really good. Um, and as usual, the fisheries the fisheries division went really good. I, you know, and said we wouldn't sensationalize or editorialize Ben, but I have to sh I have to give a shout out to to my guy to my man Ron Brooks. Ron used to be the uh, the uh, head of the fisheries division. He's now um, in charge of um, combating Asian carp. Uh, mm -hmm. That's his only job at Fish and Wildlife now, and they've appointed a new fisheries uh, division head. Uh, but fisheries is just always seems to be on track. And then the things that uh, we have to tell our listeners is um, long term, uh, it looks like we're going to get uh, an American Disabilities Act compliant fishing pier at Cave Run Lake. Um, the challenges with Cave Run Lake is it's not owned by the state. It's not even owned by the Corps of Engineers. It's owned by U.S. Fish and Wildlife. <laughs> so there's going to be some significant hoops to jump through. But... Uh, uh, that district commissioner had already reached out to um, some federal legislators who got behind it. And when you get that kind of horsepower, and and how can you tell people no to a disabled fishing pier? Right, yeah. A disabled compliant, yeah. uh, ADA compliant fishing pier. So yeah. it looks like that's going to go down, so that's good news. Um, Green River Lake has had a fishing pier in the works for quite a while. Um 
thanks to some leaders uh, at Kentucky and a safari club really kind of drilling down on it over the last few committee and commission meetings and asking some hard questions, uh, we sportsmen finally got those answers at the December 6th meeting. And it looks like not only are we going to get a fishing pier, Green River Lake, it looks like we've already got the permits, and it looks like there's money against it. So all we're waiting on is the water table to come down and the the engineers to get in there and start working. So it was a really good deal. And then probably my favorite part (laughs) of the entire December 6th committee commission meeting was when biologists – Tom Timmerman got up to give a briefing. And this is when uh, talent and innovation just makes you so happy, right? <laughs> this guy gets up and, and briefs how uh, he, one of his staff members used to work in Virginia, and they, mm-hmm. they pulled this idea of um, catfish breeding boxes in, okay? And these are basically, for lack of a better way to explain it to our listeners, a way to envision a catfish breeding box is it's a submerged bird box. It's yeah. a submerged birdhouse, and it gives more breeding structure in some of our lakes that just don't have it naturally to catfish, and it and allows the lake to become uh, its own little, you know, uh, hatchery pond almost. There's so, oh. it, it gives so much breeding mm-hmm. area, and it gives so many breeding boxes. That if it's successful, um, we're going to have less um, trouble at the hatcheries keeping up with demand. Yeah. The, the lakes themselves will produce enough catfish for anglers to be happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the boxes are ridiculously inexpensive. It's mostly elbow grease. So the guys over in fisheries, especially Tom Timmerman and his staff, are really to be commended for the uh, artificial catfish breeding box program. Which brings us to the wildlife division and pretty much the uh, last big things for tonight's podcast. Um, during the wildlife division uh, briefing, their first three items were all about falconry. Uh, it's the first time in a number of years that I've been at almost every meeting um, that I've heard anything about falconry. And um, the interesting and neat thing that happened is, is Kentucky got a permit for one master falconer to trap a tundras peregrine falcon just one and use that as their bird for part of what they do as falconers well um other states other surrounding states get as many as three of those permits a year so it's not something that is you know in our in our region is a big deal but it's three for the whole state not just the one or just one person yeah like indiana or indiana it's uh i think it's three this year Mm mm-hmm and so they have a lottery for all of their master falconers to put into okay. to draw those three. Gotcha. So what we're going to do is the same thing. We've only got one. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have all, all of our master falconers able to put in to be able to trap a tundras peregrine falcon. And the first three items on the agenda were about that process, how to get that process started, mm-hmm. uh, changing of the admin regulations um, to allow them to keep what amounts to in Kentucky as an exotic species because it's a that particular species of peregrine is actually uh, migratory. Okay. So, and then um, the third change was then to allow them to transport it around the state. So there were three yeah. changes that allowed for this change in falconry as a whole, which mm-hmm. is really just one falcon permit, uh, and they passed unanimously. Mm-hmm. And then the next three items were all related to chronic wasting disease, 
and the department's continued engagement um, with um, how to do things that are smart now to try to prevent the, what we believe to be the inevitable. Yep. Um, the first one was requiring double fencing on all new or any expansion to existing captive servant facilities. So these are deer and elk farms that we mm -hmm. have in the state of Kentucky where people have permits to own and breed what is essentially biologically wild animals. Yep. Um, and uh, that double fencing initiative uh, passed unanimously. Um, and something that I think our leaders would want to know, or excuse me, our listeners would want to know, is that we've had an explosion of captive serve facilities, captive deer and elk farms here in the state of Kentucky. Um, two years ago, in 2017, we had 72 total facilities or total farms. This year, we have 108. Wow. So it's grown by 50% in just two years. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, while, while a... While it's true that a captive serve facility that's run ethically and run very well and run cleanly and has the right barriers and fencing and and all the testing protocols are in is a low risk to our wild herd, hmm. that's not the challenge. Right. When the when the industry in the state is expanding so fast that we're having a hard time keeping our arms wrapped around it, you know, and the Department of Agriculture is responsible to test all the animals inside the facility. Mm -hmm. But from the fence out is the Department of Fish and Wildlife. Yep. So it's a collaborative. It's collaborative between um, one cabinet, Department of Ag, and one agency, sub-cabinet agency, Department of Fish and Wildlife. And it's really tough. But we've got a, a vastly expanding uh, deer farming industry in the state. Yeah. And uh, double fencing not only helps a deer inside the facility – keep it in mm -hmm. it prevents if they've got a clean herd inside it prevents a deer that could be infected yep. in the wild herd infecting their deer so it's good for everybody mm -hmm. um and you said that was only on new and expansions of of existing of existing okay right so if you're, you're an existing facility and you're doing good work you know it, it's really not going to hurt you yeah um Fencing's expensive. It's about mm -hmm. eight. I think it's eight dollars a foot. Eight dollars a linear foot. So yeah. when you look at in, in the outfit, you know, even the smaller ones are ten acres. Put double fencing on, you know, eight foot high double fencing around eight, you know, ten acres. It's going to be significant outlay. Oh yeah. Cash. I think I'd ask you that before the burden, the financial burden is on the facility itself. Like if it's on a property line, it doesn't count as a property line fence. Where generally, you know, the neighbors would share the cost of it. It's strictly on the facility. Yeah. So in places where, you know, these farms are, there's generally not an easement between neighbors where they chair a fence. Mm -hmm. And some of these people have put their existing fence on or near the property line, which yeah. means which means a double fence would have to be inside the property line. So their actual fence in area is going to yeah. get smaller. Yeah. Um, but I, I expect the Kentucky Alternative Livestock Association to fight that a bit. And, uh, you know, we'll see how that happens. But that passed unanimously. Um then there was another uh, CWD-related uh, uh, agenda item, and, and basically it f this item further restricted the importation of cervid, so deer, elk, or moose parts, um, to the state of Kentucky. And to boil this down into very easy terms, if you're a hunter and you're hunting outside the state of Kentucky, 
the new regulations which will go into effect next hunting season so everything that's done this year in the fish and wildlife commission does not take effect until the following year if it's passed at the legislature so there's another hurdle once it gets out of the commission anyway but would allow only deboned meat and clean skull caps or finished taxidermy from any cervids to cross state lines into the state anything else is a violation Mm -hmm. and then the final cwd related uh issue was uh uh, an agenda item that was brought up out of committee banning natural deer urine because uh, there is a very, very small chance that the proteins or the prions that are the um, caustic agent or the uh, vector for CWD could be in urine that came from a captive facility. So if you use deer urine as a scent in hunting um, and, or an attractant, and many people do, I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, banning natural urine would be something that could help prevent us from getting CWD because that urine could come in from a CWD-infected state. Even though it tested clean, it could come in. Right. It was de- it was deemed such a low priority that the um, uh, the commission didn't even get a second on the motion. So while it was an agenda item that was intended to be voted on, when the motion was made, there was not a second. So due to Roger's rules of uh, order, or Robert's rules of order, it uh, it didn't even get a vote. And then the last thing um, that came out of the wildlife division and the last thing I've got to talk about on a very lengthy report tonight (laughs) is that um, we had some really interesting updates to uh, black bear seasons, quotas, and zones. Um, So there uh, will be um, some changes that come out in next year's hunting manual about those. Uh, What I can tell everybody who's listening, or I guess all of our future listeners, since this is our first podcast, (laughs) is that uh, deer, excuse me, not deer, bear hunting in Kentucky is going to be a bigger and bigger opportunity. Our our bear uh, population is is growing. It's not exploding. It's growing for sure. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be something that we're all going to enjoy in the future. Oh, yeah. So uh, that wraps up. Do you think the state is sheer speculation – Oh, I love that <laughs> speculation. <laughs> Do you think they'll ever, well, in the near future, open it up to non-residents? Because right now you have to be a Kentucky resident to hunt bear here. I would think every change I've seen over the last three seasons, and like I say, unless I've been in Alaska or the Rockies hunting and missed a September meeting, mm-hmm. I've been to just about all of them in the last two years since I retired, and, and I cannot remember any briefing in committee or any vote in commission that was mm-hmm. not good news about our bear population okay. and our bear hunting opportunities. And so what I would say to that is I think there will come a time when you'll see a commissioner um, from the bear zone, which is generally speaking the 7th, 8th, and ninth districts. Mm-hmm. I think there'll come a time where you see them uh, bring, to, bring out of committee um, for a vote in commission to have a non-resident season. Gotcha. Gotcha. Good news. Good news all around. Yep. And, you know, um, for those federal issues that you covered, mm-hmm. I really agree with you that the backcountryhunters.org take action tabs is the place to go. Um, Simple and easy. Yeah. And and those those folks out of Montana, you know, and, and full disclosure – we're both members. Um, they do a fabulous job um, of wrapping up the issues and helping you uh, know how to contact your federal legislators. Yep. 
Absolutely. Um, but uh, so that that kind of wraps it uh, for the issues. Um, you know, you and I talked about doing this podcast. It was mm-hmm. how do we help inform and empower sportsmen because getting involved and letting legislators, elected and appointed officials know how you feel yep. and where you stand on the issues, that's how you get things done. And all too often today, I think people believe they're helpless. There's nothing they can do to fix what's going on in Frankfurt or in Washington, D.C. And, and you know, we believe they're wrong. Yeah. They can get involved. Mm-hmm. And BHA makes it too easy on their Take Action tab. Um, locally, the Kentuckiana chapter, Safari Club International, has uh, has a whole website that uh, allows people to you know understand the issues and research uh, everything that's going on in the Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. And then once you do that, you can participate. And and I believe, and we've talked about it, it's your civic duty to participate. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, you know. Elected and appointed officials work for us, mm-hmm. not the other way around, not the other way around. So, you know, we're going to continue to do these podcasts to inform and empower the sportsmen. And uh, if you go to um, www.theslowhunt.com slash podcasts or just click the podcast button, we've put a bunch of links down at the bottom of that where you can tap into other resources like backcountryhunters.org, like the Kentucky Anna Safari Club Legislative Action Committee to help you understand the issues, find out who you can talk to, find out who represents you, and then take action. Um, if you want to talk to me about anything that happened on this podcast, uh, my email is ranger, R-A-N-G-E-R, at theslowhunt.com. And Ben? Mine is uh, Bishop. At theslowhunt.com. That's right. Yep. And uh, this uh, this podcast is part of the Slow Hunt LLC network. And, uh, you know, remember, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Uh, ben, you got any final thoughts? Uh, Not really. All I can say is, you know, you don't have to be even just a hunter or a fisherman, you know, to listen to this. I mean, this is for the backpacker, the camper, the person that goes out, you know, one weekend a month and goes hiking it's for anybody that cares about conservation issues on federals or your local state level yeah yeah public lands public waters and access to the same man exactly and uh so uh yeah man you know something we try to do as often as we can ben and i is get out there and do stuff in this life because remember you'll run out of time before you run out of money Until next time, this is Colonel Mike and Ben Bishop. We'll hit you back at the State of the Outdoors.